Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I'm your host Mark Fraser and I am joined by side A and side B of this week's double album episode. All right, who's who? Who's the um like the artistic creative David? Oh, uh-huh. It's side C and side D. Side Chris and side Dave. Oh yeah, uh, I get that. See. I get that. But which see. one is like where the juices were flowing and it's got all the singles and which one is the <laughs> the, the the chubby ego-driven extra bit that could definitely be cut down. Let's yeah. not find out. Yeah, I think that <laughs> could, be de- could be detrimental to the the harmony of the podcast going forward if we do get an answer on that. <laughs> Feel free to write in and let us know. I mean, we've had some interesting correspondence this week. Uh, we're always happy to receive praise and to answer criticisms. Uh, yes. Sometimes at the same time. Yeah, sometimes at the same time. <laughs> so thank you, Jay, for your your, your timely comments, Jay Doom. We appreciated that. Um, Chris, in particular, was appreciative of your comments. Uh, and that's, yeah. that's, he's not he's not being sarcastic. I didn't give us a civil yeah. response. Yeah, <laughs> we appreciate you. Yeah, I must be sarcastic. Did that sound sarcastic? I wasn't being Absolutely. sarcastic. Absolutely, sounded <laughs> so sarcastic. I wasn't being sarcastic. Chris, in particular, really appreciated your comments. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. No, please feel free to write in. Yeah, please do. Uh, we've had some. Uh, we've had a few people write in in the past as well who since what came on, who've since went on to be subs, um, on our Patreon. Um, and even guests. Were, and even guests. Yeah, that is very true. <laughs> uh, speaking of Patreon, uh, big shout out to James Reichelt, who is our new sub. Um, sorry, sorry if I butchered your name there. Uh, I'm rubbish at that kind of thing. But thank you very much for your custom, uh, and hopefully you will enjoy the early episodes and. The bonus episode, which is going to be coming out very soon, uh, the third in our singles night series called Unsong. I'll be hitting soon, um, where we talk about Journey. Um, uh, watching. Yeah, or Demi Borgir. Yeah. We've already done that, and we've already done Duran Duran, and the next one's going to be Journey. So, yeah, um, if you want to hear that and some other cool stuff, which we are going to talk about at the end of part two of this two-parter, um, then please get stuck in. We've just got so many ideas, we can't fit it onto one single episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Go to unsungpod.net forward slash donate to see our options. You can donate in a single payment via PayPal or you can join our Patreon and get exclusive access to early episodes and loads and loads of sweet goodies. 
I fully expect the criticisms to increase uh, as we go forward anyway because as our listenership is expanding <laughs> we're getting into the terrain of more and more people that know a lot more about what we're talking about than we do <laughs> it's fine when you've got a small listenership you can sort of blag it a little bit and mm-hmm. be like yeah oh my god these guys this guy's really know what they're talking about and then as happened the other day someone's <laughs> listening it's like the fuck is he talking about that's a load of pish yeah um that's gonna happen more regularly so that's what guests are for <laughs> exactly Ferruccio will be on a lot of episodes in the future <laughs> <laughs> totally uh, so uh, Christopher aye what are we doing um, this week I, I kind of made the call on this uh, because sometimes something seems like a bad idea uh, we did it once before when we did the episode on AI and algorithms uh, algorithm and blues I believe mm-hmm. it was called I did it twice before we did one on threaten as well and that was quite good yeah, uh, yeah. so sometimes there's a concept You're like, that's a bit dry Let's do it, let's jazz it up <laughs> And I thought we should do one on double albums Because it's a thing It's an identifiable thing in music And it deserves to be talked about And there's probably something in there uh, And also, it's worth noting This is on double albums It's not on triple albums or quadruple albums Or box sets uh, Which m- I would imagine has exponentially fewer options but may well be a gauntlet that's thrown down to us at some point in the future. Mm. However, double albums, there's a lot to discuss in it, it turns out. And I actually found it really, really interesting. Uh, I spent a fair bit of time prepping uh, for what we're going to do as part one of this. It would be stupid to do an episode on double albums and not do a double episode. Uh, So part one, uh, let's look at the history of double albums. Let's talk a wee bit about the parameters and definitions and various interpretations of what that is. You know, the due diligence, as we say. Uh, And then we'll go through a couple of sort of revered classics. Then in part two, standard for our mixtape episodes, we've each picked something that qualifies. Uh, And with mixtapes, we don't tend to stick so rigidly to the unsung format. You know, if it falls, you know, like like with the new metal episode, Dave picked Korn. And I'm sure Korn would never in a million years be seen as unsung, unless you're Dave. But for this, we've each picked an album. My album will be... Melancholy and Infinite Sadness by Smashing Pumpkins. You can see why the whole concept has been chucked firmly out the window then. <laughs> uh, I went with the Zenar. Excuse me, do you really want me to tell the listeners what you fuckers are going to pick? <laughs> I mean, I picked Zen Arcade, but who's could do? Which I'll have you know, Chris is so snuffed at the less amount of copies in the Melancholy and Infinite Sadness. What were you going to pick though, Mark? I actually almost picked two albums. Uh, one, obviously, Sign of the Times by Prince, which <laughs> only last year got a, a re-release, which I think is nine hours long <laughs> on Spotify. And uh, London Column by The Clash, which is one of my favourite albums of all time. And if I can shoot on it in a conversation at any point, I definitely will try, but... I'm actually, you know what, I'm actually a bit gutted that I, I didn't go with London Column because Husker do listen to them, there's a lot more stuff there that was good than I even remembered or ever been. I think it would be good to do a single episode on them. But um, yeah, I'll pick oh, that. you might. Dave? 
Uh, well, I was going to go with a jazz classic, Miles Davis, Agarta, but then I realised I chose Miles Davis for the live album, so can't really do that again, can I? I thought you were going to pick Bitches Brew. Oh, was it Miles? Oh, yeah, that's... Did I choose Agarta before? I've, yeah, I've, you did. I, I chose Agarta before, and I was going to go for Bitches Brew this time. Here <laughs> right. lies the problem, yeah. Uh, but what I have chosen is Joni Mitchell's Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. It was either that or it was a uh, system of a down hypnotized mesmer. <laughs> no, it wasn't that at all. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. It's interesting. I know we'll probably talk about this a little bit, but I just wanted to bring it up at the start, otherwise I forget. But I think it's interesting that we've all picked artists that have released more than one double album. Yes. This good day's picked more, uh, released more than one double album. Yeah, the last album, Warehouse, is a double album. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Well, it probably means that they can look at the ones they've done as successful. You know, quite often a band does a double album and then realise, oh, fuck, I really, <laughs> really shat the bed there. Or the record label goes, never again. You've spent way too much money. Yeah. Spoiler alert, Smashing Pumpkins <laughs> would, pre- <laughs> would pretty much have done nothing but double albums if they'd been able to. So yeah. uh, from the point onwards anyway. Uh, okay, like I said, I think there's some background to this and it's, it's actually kind of interesting. Um, like, What is a double album? Where does it come from? When did it start? Uh, I mean, there'll be a lot of disagreement about what qualifies as a true double album as well. You see that when I was browsing for the research for this, you see it on forums, people raging back and forth online about what is and what isn't really a double album. So we'll try and settle on an approximate definition. Uh, And it was like, where to start? Well, where to start, I think, is in the format... Uh, at this point everybody goes to make a cup of tea but the format I think is is totally irrelevant, format matters so a standard 12 inch 33 RPM vinyl record can have a playtime of roughly 22 minutes per side for a total of 44 minutes generally any longer and the sound quality will start to deteriorate that's key uh, because we're going to be spanning a lot of eras here mm-hmm. and what's going to become tremendously apparent very early on uh, is that any album over 44 minutes pre-1983, which is a key date that we'll get to, was automatically a double album. Now, it doesn't mean that it was necessarily a double album intentionally, or in, in terms of concept, it, it was perhaps just a long album. Uh, but going way, way back, the first double album in history of music, or mo- a popular music uh, that's out with classical, which I think had done it quite early, was uh, Ella Fitzgerald Sings the Cole Porter Songbook in 1956, which was released as a double vinyl. Is my enemy the night, my friend? For I'm always so alone till the day draws to an end. Ella Fitzgerald actually did a whole load of them back then before it was even really a thing. Um, before World War II, records were available, but they were really quite expensive, and the players to, to play them on even more so. So, um, Double albums remained kind of rarities in the 1960s because of the sheer price. Uh, the first live recording double LP was Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall in 1961. When you're smiling, when you're smiling, the whole world smiles with you. When you're laughing... Um, and... 
around about that time, double LP compilations were issued, like compilations specifically were issued for the Beatles, Chuck Berry, Johnny Cash, loads more, um, between like 64 and 67. I think it's sort of like apocryphal that Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde in 66 was the first studio double album composed as a sort of single artistic piece only featuring new songs. Uh, and that was immediately followed by uh, Mothers of Invention, Frank Zappa's uh, Freak Out in 1966, which is actually the, the week after Blonde on Blonde came out. Mr. America, walk on by your schools that do not teach. Mr. America, walk on by the minds that won't be reached. Also one of the first concept albums, actually, certainly in American rock culture. Um, and I think at that point, you're approaching what starts to kind of encroach upon the, the purest example of a double album. It's something that's self-aware of its own format. You know, because Blonde on Blonde was literally just an album that exceeded the running length of, of a traditional vinyl. Whereas Zappa, very early on in that process, said, right, this is going to be more than one disc. Therefore, it needs to sort of acknowledge that fact in and of itself. Um, either of you guys particularly into Blonde on Blonde. I'm really not a Bob Dylan fan. No, I've never got into much Dylan. It's one of those guys that there's just too fucking much to get into. I don't know where to start. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, In 67, uh, one of our countrymen, Donovan, released an album called A Gift from a Flower to a Garden. It's actually Donovan's fifth album at that point. Um, it came out on Epic Records, I think, and what they'd done was they'd released the two different album parts separately. I think they were something like four months apart or something like that. One of them was Where Your Love Like Heaven and one of them was For The Little Ones or For Little Ones. And that, I think, is the first properly conceptual double album where the two records have a different aesthetic and in, and in this case, in fact, a different release because, you know, it was early on in it. They didn't really know what to do with it. But they were released as a proper, authentic double album. And I think that Donovan record is the first example that's maybe analogous to the likes of Smashing Pumpkins where you have the discs have, like, distinct names, different artwork and different, you know, they, they maybe reflect the sort of yin and yang, you know, they have some sort of quality that is playing off of that, that duality. Um, so, yeah, I think Donovan actually gets that title. Um, and like from 1968 there were six double albums published that doubled the following year and by the time that prog rock in the 70s took off and metal in the 80s took off double albums became you know a a reasonably standard thing Mm. Uh, and then something very significant happened but before we go into something significant do we at least agree that of that age the vast majority of the albums that we're talking about are simply long albums spanning more than one record because of the limitations of that record uh, I think I think for the most part. Anyway, as I said, by 1983, something sort of seismic had happened, and it was the previous year that the compact disc was released, 1982. Again, standard CDs are designed to hold up to 74 minutes of uncompressed stereo digital audio, um, or about 650 to 700 mega data. Uh, capacity is often extended to 80 minutes. The first CD 
uh, first test CD, in fact, was pressed in Hanover in Germany by Polydor, or Polydor Pressing Operations Plant, in 1981. Uh, that first ever test press CD contained a recording of Richard Strauss's Eine Alpensinfonie, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm sure is majestic. which was played by the Berlin Philharmonic and conducted by Herbert von Karajan, or Karajan. So it was the first ever CD test pressed in 81. Just a year later, they were already released. Um, ABBA Visitors, fucking Belter, and a previous star of a, a previous unsung uh, episode, uh, which was released prior to this. It was released in 1981, but became the first commercially produced CD in November 1982. However, it wasn't the first commercially released uh, CD. Uh, the first pop album to be released in the CD was Billy Joel's 52nd Street, which was pressed after ABBA but released before it. Um, and that reached the market alongside Sony's uh, CD player, the CDP 101, first ever one on October the 1st, 1982 in Japan. That was the first thing to come out. It's like the first game that came out with the NES, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and uh, I think the first actual release overall on CD was uh, Chopin's Waltzes by Claudio Arrau in the same year, 82. Interesting. Uh, now, I, I did a fair bit of digging. Um, it was really, really difficult to try and find what the, the first ever double CD was. Uh, I didn't really get to the bottom of it. I, I mean, I was rummaging through Sony's catalogues. Um, there was... Um, a Stephen Sondheim play or something like that there was some kind of soundtrack that might be the first one but it was really hard there was no real definitive thing that I could find on the internet that said what was the first ever double CD but what I think becomes really obvious is that when CDs arrived with that extended running time a lot of the double LP records became lazily sort of condensed down to fit that new format partly because it was so much cheaper you could now you know you saved a hell of a lot in bulk on shipping you're shipping like because remember they were shipping huge numbers back then shipping the units the weights all that stuff that all changed it it was a total game changer um but there were some drastic edits involved in a lot of those and often where something had been say a concept double lp the concept was sort of flattened it was kind of trodden down to fit onto the cd and a lot of the it didn't make as much sense. You know, you would have a sudden change in, in feel halfway through the CD and it wouldn't be as apparent why that was and it was because on vinyl and there was a kind of AB concept and that wasn't really translating. Uh, although, conversely, uh, with the longer running time of CDs, it led to a lot of the albums, including the likes of Visitors, when they were issued on CD, having loads of new material or accompanying material and reissues and stuff. Um, double CDs were a gamble for the bands and for the labels, but they definitely gave the labels, uh, the manufacturers, the ability to charge much more, like far beyond the proportional unit cost extra. You know, so making a double CD didn't add a tenner onto the price, but it often did in the retail end, so that the, the uh, profit margins increased quite a bit. So there was a benefit to that, but there was also a lot more risk if a double CD didn't shift because you'd outlaid so much more than that. And that would come back to bite Smashing Pumpkins in the ass for starters, and we'll hear about that in episode two. Um, the CDs enabled really easy reissues. The likes of Relapse fucking loved that. Between double CDs and digipacks, I mean, they could resell albums what, four or five times over just by tweaking the, the added material. 
Dave, any favourites for that era? I remember, I think it was Amen, mm-hmm. got a constantly reissued copy of their version of their first album. Yeah, that's right. But that was because their first record was on Roadrunner, I thought. And then they got they disowned it. Sorry, that's that's the one I'm thinking of, actually. Roadrunner, you're absolutely right, not Relapse. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there was always like a Soulfly or a Fear Factory or a <laughs> whatever record that you could find with an extra disc or even Slipknot, like that first record, there's about 12 different versions of that. Yeah, we'll come back to that because... What becomes interesting is the content of, of the second discs in these in these cases. But before we get to that, there was something that I uncovered here which kind of took me aback. Because double CDs, double discs, had a beneficial impact on charts and sales, and bragging rights especially. So I didn't realise this, but double discs these days, and for quite a while, generally count as two times units sold. Um, inflating album sales, well, basically doubling album sales. So, for example, History by Michael Jackson... Only sold thirty three. Well, only sold thirty three million copies, but it's listed as having sold sixty six million units, which is hugely significant in in the history of music. If you're if you're doing a list, of, you know, um, unit eligibility originally was actually based on running times. So an album I think had to be eighty minutes during the LP era for it to actually count as two units sold. Uh, and it was a, that was increased to 100 minutes in the CD era. So if, you, if, you, if your combined double album wasn't over 100, minute, uh, 100 minutes long, you didn't get the two units status. But then at some point that was rescinded, and I'm not really exactly sure when, uh, but eventually, somewhat more recently, the, each unit started to count, uh, uh, sorry, each double album started to count for two units. So you're talking about the White Album. The White Album is Beatles' best-selling album, but the White Album didn't sell the most copies mm-hmm. from the Beatles back catalogue. Um, and likewise, The Wall by Pink Floyd charts incredibly highly in kind of all-time units sold albums, yet it doesn't actually get there on merit compared to a lot of other records uh, of that era. I thought it was really interesting because it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a kind of eye-opener as to like all these these huge totemistic records that we've had in our past that we just take for granted as being the biggest thing ever. And they were sort of fanning the numbers a wee bit. Yes, it's interesting, but prestige is probably a big thing at that point, right? If you release, if you put all the time and work on a double album, then you want it to be recognised as being more than just the sum of its parts. When a lot of these double albums were not consistently brilliant, <laughs> I'm sure we're going to go to talk about this. But there's a lot of double albums that really should not be double albums. <laughs> uh, absolutely, probably more than the the, the alternative. Um, so yeah, I think I think the next thing to talk about then, really, and this is kind of where it gets sort of fun, is interpretations. Mm-hmm. And definitions. So, as I was saying earlier, I think there's probably three kind of basic subcategories we can divide them into, right? Long albums, arguably over long albums, right? But long albums. Second category would be bonus slash extended issues, brackets, reissues. And the third one would be what I'll use as like an unsung patent pending true double concept albums, the seal of authenticity. The absolute down the line diehard double album from inception to completion to marketplace. Um, I I think within that there's a couple of categories as well. Within the true double album concept, I think that can break down between an album released at the same time over two records or two vinyls or whatever, or two albums released separately that are companion albums that share a concept. And then. Another tangent to that is like the companion album that isn't necessarily a partner, but more of like a a B-side thing or like a little weedy companion rather than a full twin. 
the, yeah. the, the placenta. Um, you've you've set the groundwork. Uh, so I've already mentioned Blonde on Blonde, and I would say that's a good example of a long album, simply a long album. I mean, and get unless disc one is Blonde and disc two is Blonde. <laughs> I don't really know. But uh, the Zappa album, uh, I think that included a concept, um, albeit the concept wasn't, like, it was a concept record, but the concept of Zappa's Freak Out album wasn't directly tied to the double format. It wasn't like an AB, Yin Yang, Night Day, that, it wasn't that kind of thing. Long albums, one that I'd like to debate maybe is Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, which I know we'll probably come back to in a wee bit because there's quite a lot to say about that. I think, for example, Godspeed, You Black Emperor, uh, Lift Your Skinny Fist to Heaven, as much as I love that record, and it's sort of always been in the form of a double album, and it was like basically one track per side over like two vinyls, so four sides. It's really just a long album. There's nothing particularly made of 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 the two discs. There's 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 you know the concept wise, there's no real sort of reference to that within the record itself. I think it's just a long album that sits quite gracefully within the allotted running times of one side of vinyl mm. for each of those songs. Um, now, Dave, you're talking about two albums that sort of maybe get bundled together. One that I would suggest is a uh, Kleenex Lilliput. Uh, Lilliput is a band that started its life out as Kleenex uh, This is like back in the 70s I think They were German, kind of post-punk act And what they did was they released the Kleenex and Lilliput albums together uh, for The first first album is Kleenex, second album is Lilliput um, People like Chris Farlow, sort of 60s icon He released uh, Out of the Blue and Born Again as a bundled album Quite often with bands that had quite obscure early recordings They would re-release maybe two of their early albums as a bundled double release later on once their career had a little bit more profile um, I think an interesting one is probably Baroness Yeah they've done two Yellow and Green And they've done Golden Grey recently as well Yellow and Green were um I mean, they are distinct, they do embrace the concept, but at the same time, there's no sort of meta-narrative to that. No, there is, like, there is no narrative to it, but they're two albums with diff- distinct sonic approaches, I suppose you could say. Yeah, they, they are distinct, uh, but they have always been sort of together. What, what are the newer ones like? I the new one's Golden it. Grey, it's, like, uh, it's basically a long album. So Yellow and Green were released separately, but together, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Golden Grey is, is the name of the record, the full record, it's just a long album. Right, so I mean, as as Dave was saying, there's also a category of like bonus extended, which includes issues and reissues, um, and and in that category, I feel there are like three subcategories. Uh, I'd suggest the first one is where the, you know, like Dave touched on it, that the album comes with a sort of slightly inferior or weirder second album, which is like extraneous material and stuff like that. Um, you've got the second subcategory, which might be that the second record is live or sometimes even just a full live concert. Um, and then you've got the third category, which I would say is like and other. So, for example, DVDs, that's that, that, that's part of that. To go back and maybe give some examples, um, for the extraneous category, I would refer back to my old friend Moby, the Animal Rights album, which came with like a second disc that was called Little Idiot, and it was all these ambient suites. 
Uh, you could refer to Wowie Zowie, the reissued Sordid Sentinels edition by Pavement, which <laughs> was already an 18-track album and then came with 32 additional tracks. Which is fucking total overkill. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's an interesting one by My Bloody Valentine. Uh, they, re- they re-released Loveless, but they released it as a double album with two different versions of the mastering. So you could kind of pick your favourite. Um, but I think one was from like original tape and one was from something else. Um, and then you've got stuff like, I guess you've got like Tribes of Neurot and Neurosis. They did that album where the, they were released completely separately by two different projects, but then you could get them and bundle them together and put them on at the same time and they complemented each other. Uh, in the second category, there's loads of good examples uh, with, with live material. Umaguma um, by Pink Floyd uh, was a kind of concept disc on disc one. It was like, I think each of the members had like autoured a track and then the second was like a full live thing. Um, Nico, her album The End uh, Disc 2 featured like a combination of like John Peel and Old Grey Whistle Test Sessions Cream's album Wheel, uh, Wheels of Fire was a uh, one studio album and then one live album it's kind of arguably the best album as well uh, Tori Amos who we've spoken about in the past to Venus and back disc one is called Venus Orbiting and that's a studio album and disc two is called Venus Live Still Orbiting uh, and uh, the band Death uh, they, they brought out Spiritual Healing again uh, it was reissued by Relapse in 2012 with a disc of rarities and then a third disc and, and one, at least one reissue which was like a live concert from New York State or a I think a combination of concerts. And then the fourth, the third subcategory would be, like I said, with DVDs. So you got Mr. Beast by Mogwai, that was released with a DVD. Uh, Mary Star of the Sea, as I'm sure you both know, uh, the Zwan album released with a DVD. So yeah, there's various approaches to that kind of stuff. And then the last category and the patent pending unsung category is the true double concept album. You may find that the, the albums actually have subheadings, you know, disc A, disc B, whatever, has has its own little designated title, a bit like the Donovan one. Uh, that was the first example of that I could find. Um, some, we, we've spoken about Barnes Yellow Green, but other ones that would come under that would be uh, Outcast, uh, Speaker Box, The Love Below. Outcast, uh, it's a duo, isn't it? So I think both the guys took one album each, is that right? It's basically two solo albums. Yeah, basically. Um, but they worked together. It was actually, I don't think we ever got round to it, but it, I, I chose it as a sound as a pound because it, <laughs> it was a quid in a pound shop. But um, like, actually a genuinely good record or, you know, a good That's double a record. record. Yeah. Um, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Abattoir Blues, Liar of Orpheus, fucking brilliant record. So we'll talk about that in a second. Uh Dave, you made a joke about Cypress Hill, Skull and Bones. Fucking right, man. So that was the rap and the rock record that came out. Truly refining 
and perfecting <laughs> new metal. <laughs> Epoch defining, yeah. Uh, we've spoken about uh, Kate Bush, Ariel in the past. That was a Sea of Honey and a Sky of Honey, two kind of subtly different albums. Mm-hmm. Um, the band Bongwater brought out Double Bummer, which was um, <laughs> four different sides actually on vinyl, and the sides were called First Bummer, Second Bummer, Third Bummer, and Final Bummer. Mm-hmm. There you go. Uh, and uh, just a, a local band uh, for us up here, Biffy Clyro. They brought out a double album called Opposites. Uh, one, uh, the sand at the core of our bones, the other, the land at the end of our toes. Uh, and according to their singer Stanley Neal, uh, lyrically opposite, one optimistic, one pessimistic. Um, what I think is interesting about that, and I won't hear a word against these guys, I don't want anyone suggesting they've sold out the concept, but it was then cut down and reissued as a 14-track single disc album. Um, but I, I, they must have been really married to that concept to allow that to happen. But yeah, I, I think that was just for some territories, though. Biffy Clyro opposites. It very much defines what I, we haven't actually talked about what double albums mean. And for a lot of people, opposites by Biffy Clyro is exactly the worst of what a double album can be. A bloated, egotistical, nobody said no just fucking journey to the depth of their fucking indulgence indulgence um david can you not just support your local scene yeah no i should be supporting local music (laughs) (laughs) and and i think like that that's what we maybe haven't talked about but we will talk about maybe on our specific records but double albums because they began as oh yeah they're just a, a record that's too long to fit on you know two sides of vinyl once people started exploring the concept and then you had prog rock, um, it then became a bit of a signal for just fucking indulgence. And the ego. floodgates opened, absolutely. And in fact, to, to that end, just before we dive into this big list of things, like triple albums, you know, we're not doing them in this, but some would be Clash, uh, Sandinista, a great example of something that's overblown. Um, Prince's Emancipation... Second Prince Alarm of the episode, Mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. at the last. Yep. Um, Joanna Newsom's Have One On Me. I found a little plot of land in the garden of Eden. It was dirt and dirt is all the same. I tilled it with my two hands. Again, had the makings of an amazing album, but it's just, it's too much... Uh, Magnetic Fields actually brought out a, a triple album called uh, 69 Love Songs. It was 23 songs in each disc. They say there's a sun in the sky But me, I can't imagine why uh, And Pill, uh, Public Image Limited, uh, brought out Metal Box, which was... I think it was was it called 
second edition um, It came out as a double disc later Under a different name But it was originally Metal Box Which was three LPs inside a sort of replica film canister case With their name embossed in the front of it um, Just taking it to the absolute maximum uh, The quadruple album uh, One exists Okay, who is it? Uh, it's a Cardiff band called Quiet Marauder and their their debut album, Men, <laughs> has 111 songs on it. Okay. Uh, four hours, 49 minutes and 20 seconds, four CDs. And that means I have time to think of how I might not die if I visit an ice rink. They're sort of lo-fi, weird... The front man's got a PhD in sociology, so, you know, they're doing it to, you know, annoy people. Really don't want to read his dissertation, if that's his idea. Yeah, exactly. So, (laughs) fair play, though. They've probably shifted mega units, though. They're probably up there with Michael Jackson, with an album with that many. Yeah, they sold eight (laughs) records. (laughs) Uh, Okay, a couple other little bits of trivia. Uh, There's a thing called the the Sesqui album, album, uh, which is kind of a thing of the past now, really, because uh, it was for vinyl and it was one and a half sides. And what you'd usually have was that the fourth side was etched or sometimes just completely blank. uh, Or in the case of Jehovah Kill by Julian Cope, it was etched as though it was going to play, but it wouldn't play. Genghis Tron uh, board up the house I've got that on double vinyl with side D etched with an image of a house Um, and also I think before we go into the list it's worth mentioning that there's many bands that exist today that had they been around pre-1983 would probably have many double albums to their name I think an obvious candidate for that is Tool but also bands like Mogwai uh, and I think Godspeed would have had a hell of a lot more uh, as well, maybe a little bit more conceptually double albums as well. So, so we probably a lot of the constellation groups. Uh, but yeah, let's let's have a pop at a couple of lists here. And the first one I would suggest are all timers. The sort of tropes that are wheeled out whenever you mention double albums. We've touched on a couple of these already, but let's jump in at the deep end, guys. Use your illusion one and two by Guns N' Roses. Uh, <clears throat> shouldn't be a double album. <laughs> it's only the only thing that kind of relate that brings them both together is the fact they both got the same song on it, one with different lyrics. Don't cry. It's on mm-hmm. two, uh, or CD two, sorry, uh, with different lyrics, and it's not as good as a result. The new lyrics are the all lyrics are rubbish compared to the first one. Um, I think I think the the key question, especially for going through here, is would it be better as a single record? That's like the key question that we should ask for every double album. Yeah. Should it be cut down or should it be sliced? And um, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 would be better. Well, it would probably be better if it didn't exist, but it would be better as one album. I think as one album, it would be the, maybe the best Gods of Roses record, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, to be honest, you're probably right. But it's, it's, it comes back to exactly what you said earlier on, Dave. It's, it's they, that falls in that category of uh, just fucking like pure ego, right? It's, yeah, they were allowed to do it. They wanted to do it, so they had to do it. 
Are we saying that Biffy Clyro are the Guns and Roses of the Scottish music scene? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not averse to admitting that. Obviously, yeah. I will, I will, we can put our stamp on that now. Cherry's Democracy could have been a double album if the label hadn't went nah, even though it took so long to make. So, mm. so uh, Mark, have you ever listened to Prince? <sighs> Who's that? He's uh, he's Queen's son. <laughs> Couple of wee records there, Sign of the Times in 1999. Yes, yeah, Sign of the Times is an interesting one. That's uh, it's originally supposed to be released as a, a record called Dream Factory, written alongside the Revolution, uh, the, uh, the Revolution, and then decided to make it a, a triple disc set called Crystal Ball, which I regularly went, no, you're not doing that, mate. <laughs> one CD of which would have been him doing an entire record and a pitch shifted voice to sound like a female character called Camille. What? The yeah. fuck? Uh, and there's actually a couple of songs from the Camille project on Sign of the Times. So basically, the revolution disbanded and he decided that he was going to take all the material that he had, add a couple of new songs, and then make it into the Sign of the Times record, which he did. And I'm glad he did because it's pretty much flawless as a record, to be honest. It would have been, my, it's probably, the, in my opinion, it's one of the best, if not the best, double album of all time, which is Wall to Wall Bangers taken from such a rich period of creativity and a guy who was richly creative <laughs> as a human being um, uh, yeah there's like a, there are a couple of records like that and I I mean Chris you're going to argue that your choice in the next episode is that but it's like it, it's the opposite of like mining ego it's mining creativity and you're like holy fuck just try and fill as many albums up as possible because you are nailing it and another one uh, is like Stevie Wonder Songs in the Key of Life yeah I was going to like say that as well like you've basically got a genius creating unlimited amounts of songs there so you're just like yeah fuck it you've got a free pass <laughs> you've got so many songs it's fine Well, I would wager that Mark... Well, in fact, no, no, I, I was going to say, I would wager that you'd classify The River by Springsteen uh, in the same way, but do you want to just say a bit about 1999 before we move on? Where uh, does that fall? I would not see... 1999's on one CD, and I've only ever owned it as on one CD, so in my head it's not a double album. I know it is, though, right? Cause it's, it's, no, but that's super interesting. That, 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 like, as I said earlier on, you have this thing where like, the double albums got flattened out for the purposes of releasing a single a single record. Um, people that really fell foul of that was actually Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. They had the first... How, what's the correct definition here? The f- first vinyl hip-hop double album yeah first vinyl hip-hop double album but that wasn't released as a double album in all territories it was edited down by like 13 Mm. minutes or something like that quite substantially to fit on a single cd to make it easier to retail elsewhere uh, I do believe that Tupac in 96 was the first double album sold as a double album everywhere. All Eyes um, on Me. All Eyes on Me, yeah. But yeah, so I mean, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince would probably argue they fell foul of that flattening process that came when labels realised they could slam these onto one disc. Mm-hmm. And Mark, you 
wanted to know my feelings on Sonic Youth mm-hmm. and Daydream Nation for me when I when I was younger was just a single album. Yeah. You know, it was mm-hmm. just that was just a single disc. I didn't. I mean, I knew it was long, but I didn't realise that it, it was a double album until much later. And so, and I don't think conceptually it really comes across as a double album. It comes across as indulgent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it comes across as somewhat over long. That had the, an album that had the potential would be absolutely fucking peerless, uh, but I don't think it is as a result of it just not knowing when to shut up. Um, it's interesting you were saying about Sign of the Times being potentially three discs because that shows that he did have to trim it down or he did have to trim the ideas down. So there was effectively a bunch of fat cut from that, even if it still ended up as a double disc. And yeah, we're going to encounter a lot of records here that I think could have been much more succinct and had more bang for their buck. Yeah. Had they gotten rid of some of the weaker moments? Um, totally. We say that times in particular, man. I think you can still, if you listen to it, you can still kind of hear where the side one and side two would have been because of the flow of it. Don't know if I could really say that about 1999. Um, maybe sequencing there's some songs on one side that have those like two songs on side two of the, the the vinyl, for example. One is seven minutes long, one's eight minutes long. You know, that would be a good point to, to break it down. Um, but yeah. Sign of Times was released as a double CD so it's a double album to me What do you think about uh, The River then? I think the river is a little bit overrated. <laughs> um, oh, controversial! What I, know, I think it's great. I think it's got some of his best. Of course, it's got some of his best songs on it. Right, it, it spawned like a ridiculous amount of some singles, um, and he was fucking hot at that time as well. He was so hot. Um, oh god, there's so many songs that you would love to just see live, and that, that's obviously released as two CDs, right? Because it's over. It's just over eighty minutes long. Um, it's a cracking record. It's got so many good songs on it. I would definitely say that that is not a conceptual double album. It's a long album that actually turns out to be quite good. Yeah, I, I mean, I would be happy if it just happened to be seventy-four minutes long and fitted on one CD and wasn't a, you know, if it came out like that. Um, yeah, you could probably take you could probably take record yeah songs off that for sure, man. Absolutely. You know, much like I've been to see Bruce Springsteen twice and he played for three and a half hours each time, <laughs> and you know what? Like, it's impressive. But just give me two hours, man. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, it's great, but you could definitely shorten it a little bit. I mean, double albums are definitely the domain of bands that are getting a lot of smoke blown up their ass or that have a lot of clout. It's actually surprising to me, I mean, that Radiohead haven't done more of it. I mean, I know that Kid A uh, and an Yeah, Amnesiac, I was going to talk about Amnesiac yeah, and Kid A. They, they're but, like sister albums, but they were never they were never marketed or sold as, you know, one bundle, which I think is tasteful of Radiohead mm-hmm. in, in that sense, because it would have been a bit much to digest. Um, and you've been forced to wrestle with them in a bit more depth, given that they were released separately and, and apart, because I think if they'd all landed at the one time, especially given the, the shift in direction that the band had done, I think a lot it would have really been a bit much to swallow. I think it could have flopped quite badly, but breaking it down the way they did was quite successful and actually I have a controversial opinion which is I actually prefer Amnesiac to Kid A. And yeah, I really, really like Amnesiac. Um, but yeah, I think that was that was good judgement exercised in their part. Uh, Mark, I know you've got plenty to say about London Collins, so just get it out of your system. That, again, it's a single album to me even though it's a double album, it comes, in a, it comes on one CD and I've always only ever owned the CD version of it. 
but it kind of is a bit akin to, uh, to Husker Du for me and Zen Arcade and that it's a band which is just like in the studio and, and just obviously one uh, the Clash had way more time than Husker Du had in the studio to actually create a record Husker Du just walked in and had to do all the songs uh, within the course of like a week and mix it you know um, mm-hmm. and it sounds like it <laughs> yeah it does uh, <laughs> We can talk about sports production when we get to that. <laughs> Definitely not the strongest point of the record, but um, Clash went in with no songs and just decided to write and just keep writing and writing and writing and writing and writing until they until they got there. And then they did that, released that, and then decided to tour and come back and do Sandinista, a triple album, the following year. Um, like amazingly fertile period for them creatively, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think it's it's one of my favourite albums of all time, no doubt about it. I think it's a class record and. It's, it's a record that's probably too long, but there's nothing I would take off it. But I'm, I'm a sucker, so what can I say? Um, I think one of the uh, kind of archetypal bands for the the double vinyl, at least, was Pink Floyd. Uh, mm. The Wall is kind of commonly held up as being. Well, I think I think their best example of it. Certainly not my preferred Pink Floyd record by a long way. Um, I don't know, what do, you, what do you say about Pink Floyd? They don't really have any place in this podcast, do they? No. <laughs> no, they're not uh, They're not unsung or underrated. They are Pink Floyd. Somehow feel, I feel we can get away with talking about Prince. I just don't feel we can get away with talking about Pink Floyd. I don't know why that is. What about uh, Genesis? Lamb lies down on Broadway. Yeah, interesting one, eh? I think Unusual. that's a really good album. Very long record. It's like 90 odd minutes long, but it's great. The P- Peter Gabriel's last one, is mm-hmm. that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Proper concept as well. <laughs> a baffling concept. Yeah, yeah, really, <laughs> really. Fucking lyrics are mental. <laughs> uh, Blue Reed's Metal Machine Music. Now that is a good We've example. We've got Metallica's Injustice for All. Now that is a bad example. And oh, that <laughs> uh, also means you've got Metallica and Lou Reed's Lulu. <laughs> And also Metallica's Load and Reload. And S&M. And S&M. Yep. And what the fuck is that recent one? The Hardwired to Self-Destruct. So Metallica are a band that have had far too much smoke blown up their ass for far too fucking long. Granted, people seem pretty pretty warm for Injustice for All. I know it's I know it's liked by a few folk around the world, okay. <laughs> but the later decisions to make double albums I mean Load and Reload, so that's two you know, that's like the Kid A thing. That's two albums that were released separately but recorded at the same time. <laughs> um and I mean, they're both shit. <laughs> like, there's definitely not one good album there. Yeah. There's about three good songs on those two records, if that. Um, and then, I mean, fucking hell. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about Metallica at length during our St. Anger episodes, so. Yeah, I've got most of the expletives out of my system from that one. Um, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to not pay some attention to Metal Machine music. I think that's a really, really interesting example. It's a it's a punishing record. Had it been just a single record, <laughs> it's a fucking brutally punishing. 
idea. Uh, uh, but it really fucking threw the gauntlet down to like a whole generation of musicians that came after it. Like it really did. You see so many interviews in, in reference to Metal Machine music of people being, I heard that and suddenly I realised I had to up my game, I had to be more extreme, I had to try more... It like more like adventurous challenging things the fact that it went to double length was just so audacious like mm. really fucking bold it's a very hard thing to cut into an episode as well I'm obviously going to have to put a sample in and it's going to be like just a random <laughs> selection <Yeah. laughs> well no Chris put in that catchy bit No, not going to happen. Um, Beatles White Album. I don't really give much of a shit about the Beatles. All the stuff I like by the Beatles isn't the stuff that other people like. I have never listened to the White Album from start to finish. Uh, I'll take your advice on it. It's a good record. It's not their best record. There's a lot of great songs on it. There's, there's definitely a good album, at least on it, I would say. Yeah, um, it's like it's like my fifth favourite Beatles album. Mm-hmm. It's a great album, but it's not, you know, top tier. Yeah. Bitches Brew, Dave, you're your big guy. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, Miles Davis, I mean, he's got quite a few, not necessarily conceptually double albums, but just lengthwise double albums. Yeah. Or just, you cannot contain the you know the creative freedom of this man on 44 minutes or or whatever evidently uh i mean bitches brew is fucking amazing it's wild Mm -hmm. you can put on um like a kind of blue or something as as dinner party music and you know it's oh yeah i'm just gonna have a little glass of wine and listen to some old miles davis bitches brew you put on when you're gonna fucking trip balls man yeah and it's hell of a dinner party yeah. yeah, truly. It's like you're having you're having mushrooms for dinner, man. <laughs> uh, but mushrooms and monkey brain. Yeah. Um, although not at your house anymore these days. Uh, so uh, Elton John, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, his seventh album, his inverted commas magnum opus. Uh, 50 million sales but controversially 30 million units recorded which puts it right up there when it perhaps doesn't necessarily deserve it um, uh, never really listened to it same. like Elton John's just one of those guys that I know the big songs he's great you know in terms of writing bangers but <laughs> bangers bangers like Candle in the Wind <laughs> aye obviously the donk version <laughs> I was going to say the Skrillex remix <laughs> yeah yeah uh, Another uh, dusty, horrible fucking rock trope. Led Zeppelin, physical graffiti. Yeah, it's a, that's a really good album. It's a really, really good album. Oh my God, I couldn't, couldn't give a fuck about that band. Honestly. Oh my God. Well, Led Zeppelin are genuinely really good. And I know, you know, 
they stole bits and bobs and including underage girls yeah you know abducted them exactly but musically you cannot deny that they were very good at rock and roll i can deny it i just don't get in and from it at all there's a couple of tracks maybe like immigrant song maybe no quarter are pretty decent but honestly that fucking rhythm and blues stadium bullshit fuck off Honestly, I mean, this is a hard rock record, right? This is a hard rock album, so... No, I'm putting it on record here, Mark. Fuck off, Led Zeppelin. <laughs> I think I, I think it's fucking great. Like, they're over and my time of dying. Cashmere, obviously that riff, man. Trampled Underfoot, House of the Holy. Yeah, there's just so many good songs in this record. Yeah, I fucking love Trampled Underfoot, man. Amazing. Uh, Wu-Tang Forever. Wu-Tang Clan. Second album. This is the training that's going to be given to you. Bold move uh, An enhanced CD that came with the, the issue that featured uh, Walk around Wu-Tang Mansions <laughs> Well that's what you want That's like a band in its creative peak <laughs> Was that before Was that before Cribs? Did they invent Cribs? Yeah maybe they invented it <laughs> Oh fucking fair play man uh, Nine Inch Nails, The Fragile Controversial album, isn't it? It's fucking like it's, it's a good record. We talked well. about it. Yeah. We talked about it when we did Downward Spiral, yeah, and it uh, is a great record. A lot of people you know, hate it, though. A lot of people hate that album. But you know what? I've, I actually have found that I didn't really give too much of a shit about it at the time because I was so in love with Downward Spiral. We've done a Nine Inch Nails episode, by the way, and personally, I think it's one of our best episodes. If you like Nine Inch Nails, please go back and listen to it, where we go into this in a bit more detail. I didn't particularly like Fragile at the time, but I think in hindsight, it's actually aged pretty well, and it brought some new elements into their sound that put them in good stead for going forward with their career. Um and I know a lot of people that still give it spins, you know, and I, th- I, I was surprised at that, actually. I thought Nine Inch Nails were going to be an inherently kind of teenage band that you got over a bit like Marlon Manson, but stuff like that really helped give them a bit of like, like longevity. Uh, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Yeah, my experience is maybe slightly different for that. Um, XTC, the album English Settlement, really big one for them. The single Senses Working Overtime's on that, uh, kind of modelled in that old song 54321. They specifically wrote that song as a single. Um, but that was actually later re-released minus, I think, five different songs as a, as a single disc. Um, Tago Mago by Can. One of the sort of indispensable kraut rock records of the 70s and just in general. Um, ultra repetitive, pretty fucking loose. Um, I think Damo Suzuki was out of the picture at this point. I mean, the people that love psych rock and stoner rock and kraut rock, that's always, always in their collection. It's totally revered. Um, 
any other big hitters that jump into your mind? Because I've got a whole bunch of kind of slightly lesser known or more niche ones that I'd like to mention. I think um, to go back to, to, to go back to the category of reissues and box sets and all that, the Minor Street Preachers have got really bad for this over the course of the past 10 years. I was about to mention Generation Terrorist. I mean, that's not a double album um, at all. It's a single record. and it's. But was it on two vinyl? It wasn't released event, it was only released in CD. Was it? Yeah, uh, it was released in vinyl uh, much more recently, but it was only ever released in uh, CD. Because it's o- way over long. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, there's things like about that album, and it's mostly the fact that they were given a bunch of money by a record label, they were basically still, they were just teenagers, and they decided just to go fucking mental and do what they wanted, and they did, and I, I, I kind of I kind of like that, it's quite punk rock, right? It's, it's endearing in its own way, I suppose. Um, but... Ever since, you know, they've been reissuing stuff. So they've reissued, uh, for the anniversaries of loads of albums, man, they've reissued a hundred of stuff. So, for example, the Holy Bible's had two reissues. It's had, it had a two-disc reissue and a three-disc reissue mm-hmm. for its 10th, uh, I think it was its 10th and 15th anniversary, or 15th and 20th anniversary, or maybe 10th and 20th, I don't know. Anyway, for a yearly anniversary, I think they did it, and then released alongside the 20th anniversary a whole box set, which had, like, live footage and DVDs and shit like that. Like, it was well overdone, like, proper cash grab and they've done that with loads of albums ever since like, this is my fifth yeah. time years everything must go um, the big ones the bigger ones so it's all about the Benjamins man yeah for a band that was so resolutely a protest rock lefty cool right on fucking fuck the government it's all about milking the fucking guys in BMWs totally man totally um, and they actually released a double a, a double album that wasn't a double that wasn't a concept album it was just like two albums recorded at the same time and released like months apart in 2013 Rewind the Film mm. and Futurology so yeah. oh, another lefty band that did that System of a Down Yeah, they did. Yeah, hypnotize. Uh, mesmerize and hypnotize. And funnily enough, I guess toxicity and then steal this album kind of counts because steal this album is basically leftovers from the toxicity sessions. Mm-hmm. So that's basically like a that's one of those you know the weaker, slightly unformed fetus record. <laughs> uh, whereas mesmerize and hypnotize was a deliberate double album, but released as two records six months apart. I. Uh, only the f- fourth band to have two studio albums at number one uh, in the same year uh, after the Beatles, Tupac and DMX. Um, and I guess that that's also one, I mean, it's the a band getting bloated. You could see the struggles with ego. You know, you had Serge was doing much less on the record and mm. Darren was doing a lot more. And also it was one good record over two. Mm-hmm. It could definitely be trimmed down. Absolutely. But, by the way, I think uh, there is a, a medical term for what you're describing with regards to Steelers' album. I think it's called the parasitic twin. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. That is, yeah. We kind of spoke a little bit about albums that have been compressed down to one CD and Electric Landlady by Jimi, Jimi Hendrix is one Landlady! <laughs> electric <laughs> Landlady! That's what it is. Oh, sorry, Electric Ladyland, sorry. <laughs> Jesus. Electric Ladyland. She sounds like fun. She does. <laughs> She, um, just, she just goes quiet and you have to get send somebody to get a power card <laughs> <laughs> so here, here's a weird one uh, I don't want to be seen as uh, condoning or endorsing the band but Coheed and Cambria released a double album called The Afterman I love you dearly, my friend. 
And the two discs I think were released four months apart But it had all been recorded in the same sessions And credit where it's due In terms of concept albums It's the fucking real deal To the point where it was like The narrative was this fully formed sort of dystopian thing that was co-written with a comic book writer called Peter David uh, who'd done like Incredible Hulk and some other stuff you know so they really went to town on the concept album for that one so that's that's like the real deal well I can actually add another caveat to that um, all of Coed and Campus albums are part of the same story they're a concept band every single one of them the Afterman takes place after the it's called Amity, the Amity Wars I think the story uh, that's right, aye. That's aye. What part of the story is they steal the drummer from a much superior band and ruin my life? I fucking hate that bit. That part, aye. I think the, af- the Afterman takes place after the main narrative of the Amory Wharf story, I believe. Um, I- I'm not a huge fan of the band, I just know this because I think the concept is really, really interesting. I like the idea of doing that and an emo band who then became a prog rock band doing something like that I think is really fucking cool nobody was really doing it at the time and remember how um, you said that Prince was going to release a, a triple disc thing and the third disc was going to be pitch shifted vocals way up to be like I think Queen and stole that idea for <laughs> yeah <it>. totally <laughs> <laughs> uh, an interesting one is uh, the Galilean Satellites by Rosetta I think we maybe talked about that in a like one of the post rock ones or post metal, but that was a double album where the first record uh, was just like heavy post metal. The second record was ambient soundscapes. They correspond to each other, but they can also be played at exactly the same time on two stereos. That's stolen from Tribes of Neurot and Neurosis, though, isn't it? In yeah, Times of Grace. Um, Okay, well, I guess we're in the territory of just interesting things that we quite like. I mean, I, originally, I already mentioned the Nick Cave album, Abattoir Blues and Lyra of Orpheus. And I will say, whilst I have the utmost admiration for Nick Cave, I think he has put out an awful lot of music that I just don't give a shit about. However, that double album had the potential to be an absolutely peerlessly fucking brilliant single album. I mean, there are so many great fucking tracks on that record that it really frustrates me that it got padded out to a double when it really didn't need to be. Well, I chase you up and down the stairs Well, under tables and over chairs Well, I reach out and I mean, Cannibals Hymn, Supernaturally, Nature Boy, Carry Me, some of his absolutely best stuff. Uh, and I would just have loved if that had been condensed down, because there is some truly amazing music on that. It's just annoying having to skip through it, because it is bloid. Um, I think the band Unwound deserve a mention, because Unwound started as pretty much a kind of like proto-post-hardcore band. I mean, they were one of those kind of really early post-hardcore bands, bands that were taking kind of hardcore influences and doing something much artier with them. Um, the album Leaves Turn Inside You was a conceptual double album by them. Just a really interesting arty noise rock album and they're no doubt a band that we'll cover in some depth so I don't want to labour it. Uh, I would love to mention Sadness Will Prevail by Today Is The Day. 
today's the day have so many fucking records, right? And a bit like uh, Husker do, they also have a habit of recording their records quite badly, uh, which sometimes means they don't get the credit they deserve. In the context of Sadness Will Prevail, it kind of works, because the point of Sadness Will Prevail is to grind you into the absolute dirt with misery. I mean, it is literally just, it's two and a half hours of relentless misanthropy covering pretty much every depressing subject you can imagine, you know, like suicide, miscarriage, like death, like self-harm. Biffy Clyro. Oh, (laughs) Biffy Clyro, uh, Led Zeppelin. I mean, it's absolutely fucking punishing. And it is somewhere between metal and noise rocks. It's very harsh sonically already. It required uh, a four LP release to, to accommodate it originally. It's mercifully, it's on two discs. But it's a brutally tough listen. It is actually, it's quite sloppy in places as well. And I'm not sure what the band's uh, feelings are about it. But in terms of like what they set out to do, I mean, the cover alone is just depressing to look at. In terms of what they set out to do, I think they really achieved it. They have taken the length as a thing and used it to really test their audience, even their dedicated audience. They've really tested them with that album, and I think yeah, it's kind of interesting in itself. It's, as you said, it's very punk. Uh, we've covered Stars of the Lid when we interviewed Ben Power of Blank Mass. Uh, he nominated the Tired Sounds of, and that is a beautiful double album that really has to be a double album just because the the band are so like slow, like molasses slow. You know what I mean? Just like, crawlingly fucking ambient, evolving sounds that take three minutes to get anywhere. That it has to be like that, really. Uh, we've also covered The Knife and in particular Shaking the Habitual. Which I absolutely fucking love, but if you recall, there was a 19 minute track on the original version called Old Dreams Waiting to Be Realised, which I think is actually quite important to, to the record. Um, and it was omitted in order for it to be released as a single disc and I think it it clearly loses something it loses 19 minutes of experimental sound but in the context of that record that that track was very important as a pacer and you know once you were in you were really in whereas it feels a little bit more superficial listening to the album without it it's just a series of quite cool tunes it doesn't feel as much of an experience an artistic experience without that but I guess that's a compromise Uh, Mark Minutemen, double nickels on the dime. That was a close thing for you, eh? Yeah, the Minutemen vote double nickels on the dime after being inspired by who's got to Zen Arcade to do so. But double nickels on the dime is very much not taking the entire concept of a double album really at all seriously. They were uh, on the same label, weren't they? they were yeah, they're on SST. Yeah, uh-huh. it's it's a really really good record. It's got forty five songs. A lot of them are like two minutes, less than a minute. Some of them. Uh, it's a fun album. It's a really fun. It's ridiculous. There's there's weird interludes in it, and it's just just three guys in a room like making fun fucking noise and just not really giving a fuck, which is a whole minute man vibe, right? And it's it's bookended with tragedy as well because the singer died not long one of the singers died not long after it um, but to leave it on that really sort of whimsical almost note is, is great and I almost picked it but I think there's I think like Husker do there's an episode in them as well such a such an iconic cover in that mm-hmm. album as yeah. well um, okay well I've only really got two more that really jumped into my head uh, one of them is Swans uh, they've got two they've actually got two um, they've got a soundtrack for the blind 
which was two discs. One was called Silver and one was called Copper. And it saw them going to... Like, Swans had kind of started out in the very early 80s as this kind of really, like, sonic assault band, like, harsh noise, very deafening, like, post-punk amplified to, to the nth degree. But they changed direction by degrees. This album does have some intense stuff, but it's also got a lot of sombre, ambient, droney things, much more artistic and involving and, and quite gloomy and morose. in keeping with, with his personality, I guess, uh, Michael Gira. Um, it also incorporated a lot of field recordings. Gira, who I guess masterminded that project, they pitched it as a soundtrack to a film that didn't exist, and so they tried to create a narrative through the music without there actually being an existing film. Um, and they also had a double record called Children of God uh, in 87, which was when they'd kind of first left that noise assault Thing. It's a bit more primordial in terms of them finding their way and the droney stuff, but um, yeah, it's also pretty good. Uh, the last one I'd mentioned, which is a pretty ignominious entry in the annals of double albums, is Reflector by Arcade Fire. And I've, I've actually got a lot of time for Arcade Fire. They've always done this hot, cold, hot, cold thing for me where I love the first album, I love the third album, don't give a shit about the second album, and I really don't give a shit about Reflector. It has one good tune in it that, that really stands out It's Never Over, Hey Orpheus. Uh, it was done in conjunction with James Murphy of LCD Sound System. It's maybe partly why I don't like it. Um, he played up the really dancey, electronic vibes of it. It just seems in, not only the album itself, and uh, but the, the whole concept and project seems really bloated and self-indulgent and a band that's just a little bit up its own, well, more than a little bit up its own arse. I think they moved away to Haiti for it and tried to incorporate the sounds of the local community and all that's fucking bullshit and you're like Jesus Christ guys you're just a big fucking folk pop band just write some big fucking folk pop songs and shut the fuck up it's a needless and disappointing record given that it was coming off the back of the suburbs which I think is a really 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 good album um, but yeah that's uh, I guess I mean, there's so many more but for me that's that's the only other ones that pop in you guys get any more? Um, I've got a few so Opeth, uh, Deliverance and Damnation. Oh yeah, shit! I wonder. Came that. out two thousand and two, I think it was. And that was their sixth and seventh record, mm-hmm. and they were recorded at the same time. Came after Blackwater Park, which, which is- was. Which is my favourite Opeth record. But basically what they decided to do was like do a really heavy record and do a much lighter record. Basically do one album of the two sides of the band. Um, And it kind of worked. Like Deliverance is like really fucking heavy. And then Damnation is we smoke loads of weed and play loads of Mellotron. (laughs) But it's it's just quite interesting. Here are the two touchstones of our band we're going to do an album of each just once and then the rest of our albums are you know the full thing um another artist who kind of did that recently was princess nokia i am fucking with ya listening to scissor hennessy my picture how am my liver get the food delivered cold like a shiver 
Uh, she released Everything is Beautiful and Everything Sucks uh, was it last year two years ago and one is like a much harder hip hop record that goes back to like her first record and like it's even got a bit where she she's she was a tomboy she grew up listening to new metal and there's even a bit on Everything Sucks where she does the twist bit from Korn um, and then Everything is Beautiful is a much lighter sort of R&B record um, and I just I've just seen that in the last couple of months like her new album is coming out I think she's signed to a major label and she's started you know fucking wearing skimpy dresses and having glamorous photo shoots and I mean fair play she's allowed to do that but also it feels you know her whole vibe was she's a tomboy and she smokes weed and she listens to Slipknot <laughs> so oh well but somebody who did the opposite of that Taylor Swift, Folklore and Evermore. Yeah, but I mean, I actually, I don't give a shit, but it's interesting that she released those two sort of companion records and she was going from pop princess and then going, all right, I'm good, try and get indie credibility. It's so it's no, like... That's no less contrived. Yeah, no, I'm not saying... I, I Absolutely, but it's interesting that she's doing it the other way. Um, some records that I really like, Kamasi Washington, The, the Epic... Which is actually officially a triple record, I think. Uh, Disqualified. <laughs> I was thinking of maybe doing that one day. Yeah, I mean, we can go back to that. That can go on our triple record. A, a couple of really heavy ones. Uh, Bell Witch, Mirror Reaper. Which is fucking amazing, and that's just one eighty-three minute long song. <laughs> so, fuck it, hell, man. Uh, and it's yeah, it's really good. I wonder how does that work in how, terms how of how does that work? Yeah, what I, I was mean, gonna say. You know how you get like double the units for selling whatever uh-huh. uh, in the olden days. Do you only get one play on Spotify if they listen to your eighty-three minute song? Yeah, you do. That's See, they're they're the opposite. They are like, fuck your streams. <laughs> we're we're putting this in as eighty three minutes. So when did that come out? Uh, twenty sixteen, I think. Twenty seventeen. Right, so that is interesting, right? Because you are leading us on to your next subject. So throw in yeah. your last few, and then I want to go back to that. Um, there's a couple of black metal records by a band called uh, Fuesteras. They released Blow Him and Relas. One's a bit lighter. One's a bit heavier. A bit darker. Uh, an interesting one, Mayor Cognitum and Spectral Lore, two bands, came together and did this mad concept album called Wanderers, Astrology of the Nine, and it's like this mad conceptual metal album about the planets. And it's about fucking two hours long, and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, Neptunian maximalism, big deep jazzy metal doom drone called Eons. It's really good. And then I guess this is the one that leads on to what we're about to talk about. DJ Sabrina, the teenage DJ. I talked about them uh, as part of my favorite records of last year during our drunken Christmas special. Uh, <laughs> this is completely 
changed by the digital format because this is a three hour long 31 song sort of mixtape record I don't know if it's a double album or a triple album. I don't think it was ever meant to be. They've never even thought of the concept of different sides. It was just always a digital three-hour mixtape. So that's completely sort of shaped by it just going online. It was, you know, it's probably never going to see a physical release. So does that count? I don't know. <laughs> um, so I want to pick you up. Uh, I want I want to pick up on the the whole notion of modern releases that that break these kind of time limits. The Bell Witch one's released in a digital era when the time length doesn't necessarily mean as much. Dope Smoker by Sleep wasn't. Dope Smoker by yep. Sleep has like three different versions, or the Dope Smoker in Jerusalem because there's different you know versions of it. But it always it fitted on one record. It was it was an hour long, but they broke that up into like six or seven songs. It's six identically named songs. Yeah, so it was a fifty-two minute version, a seventy-three, a seventy-five, and a sixty something on vinyl. But you know you can't get sixty odd minutes on a vinyl, so that's mm. multiple sides already. I mean, I just the multiple different versions and reissues because it was across four years that was released under very iterations. Um, so that's that's an interesting one pre. The modern facility for, for, for medium not being as constraining. But this brings me on to the kind of closing remarks here, right? Because, you know, uh, Bell Witch at 83 minutes, don't have to worry, it's a stream. It's a, you know, I'm sure if they try and make a physical release, they'll probably have to try and get people to get up and turn the side, and that's probably a pain in the ass. Uh, but when it comes to digital releases, that has completely changed. I mean, the double album has become anachronistic in a sense. You know, now I think on, on, on two in two levels. First of all, it's become anachronistic because you no longer have a, a, a carry a physical medium that is carrying that music, or at least it's not necessarily recorded in most cases with that the constraints of that physical medium in mind. You know, the the, the runtime, uh, the start of side A, the start of side B, all these different things that you'd factor into it. You know, um, but also. I think there's also the phenomenon that we've documented many, many times in this uh, of just shortening attention spans. I mean, so many artists now are just putting out single tracks at a time, one after the other, you know, the SoundCloud sort of rap model of just like throwing tracks out, throwing tracks out, throwing tracks out. The album is devalued as a, a, an entity anyway. That whole environment, that, that whole... Uh, culture. That, that whole culture, that whole economy is so different now that, that you know, the notion of an artist doing a double album now is almost meaningless. It's like, what is a double album? Because it's all just like 23 tracks on, or, you know, 18 tracks or 42 tracks on Spotify now anyway. And that's interesting because it's something we're losing. In hindsight, it makes a lot of what we've talked about really fascinating because this is a, a glimpse of a period in history where the medium had a sort of feedback loop effect into the artistic process. And that's what I was saying when we're trying to sort of like patent pending on the, the true double, you know, concept album. That was the most acute 
feedback loop where the the actual formats were being considered at almost at the writing stage in a lot of these cases and certainly at the stage of track sequencing and you know names and artwork and stuff like that that's kind of gone um and that so all this talk about double albums it may seem oh it's a bit it's a bit dry but actually i think this is going to be a fascinating thing in 20 years time when you have a generation of people that grew up without what's a double album you know what it actually is that and you're like well that was a real thing. That was a, there was a real artistic consideration and a real indulgence. There's a con- artistic artists. consideration given the technology and the formats of the times. And I'm intrigued to see what ego and indulgence and creative genius comes up with for short attention spans. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's still going to be folk out there with 50 songs to release every year in 20 years. So they are going to do it. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like the notion, well, they just do it, you know, once a week and drop it on fucking. Well, TikTok. yeah, and I, don't know. I think I think they do, and and also, will overarching narratives continue to be as much of a thing? I would suggest there'll still be some, obviously, but I would suggest they certainly won't be as prevalent. And I mean, overarching narratives were pretty much what underpinned the whole prog rock movement, and they've got a huge part in the metal movement as well. So, the nature of the genres will be determined a little bit by that as well. Mm-hmm. I have to just say that. I know there is a cultural phenomenon or, you know, apparently attention spans are getting smaller uh, and shorter, but also people are buying more books than ever. People are watching fucking three and a half hour long movies. Mm. And box sets. Yeah. 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 You know, so I, I don't necessarily think that's a truism. I think that's more of a... Mm. maybe a boomer misconception well I don't want to be misconstrued here I don't want to say like doom and gloom like I'm saying oh that's the end of narratives I'm just saying that in that context like the the sort of space narratives that under or indeed we did Fear Factory with the cyber metal futuristic narratives like will narratives be as big a part uh, of album projects in future I suspect that whilst they will still be there they won't be and therefore the art will change slightly especially because you don't have the artwork in front of you either and the artwork often played such a big role in the music itself and vice versa and you'd all these feedback loops between artwork between how the band was perceived between the format that they were recording on that all informed the project they were doing and those considerations maybe aren't there anymore so whilst there will still be some although i think it does become more multimedia i think you know people will release Mm -hmm. you know fucking twitter threads and things like that that go with the uh, with a record and stuff like that and i get yeah it'll be really interesting to see what happens it's also a a part of it just gives me shades of the argument that we've always had between like popular music and and everything else alternative music right i think there's always going to be a place for narratives and stuff in alternative music and pop music has, has been gone for a, a, quite a while, you know, for the most part. But even then, th- like most pop music releases rely on selling themselves with a narrative. The narrative is normally personality based or, you know, personal story based. But when fucking Taylor Swift or whoever comes out with a record, quite often it's the, oh, hey, I've had a breakup and this is my comeback record or this is my my marriage record or things like that. Those concepts are a lot more personal and they're a lot more, you know, throwaway. But when selling a record, they still rely on that, I think. They still rely on that story to give it a, you know... Well, yeah. yeah, well, all good, mar- all good marketing is, is supposed to humanise the subject, right? That's, that's, the, that's the way it works. PR, I, I don't, obviously I don't need to tell you guys, but I suppose the listeners, um, every single press release you'll ever read for a band that's got a new record is always hyping up, like, some... 
where they've been, what they've done, what the village that they went to, the yeah. fucking guitar that was given to them by blah blah blah. <laughs> Jesus, it's all such bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, that's disc one. Run its full possible running length, guys. I know, and we've maximised this as well. That's see, that's funny how. You know, you get two albums and instead of making like two 40 minute records, you're like, nah, let's make two 78 minute records. <laughs> Fuck it. Let's make them both as long as possible. Uh, so coming up in part two, uh, we're going to, uh, or disc two, uh, we're going to dive into our three choices uh, for me. That's Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy and Infinite Sadness. For David. It's Johnny Mitchell, Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. And for Mark. It's Who's Good Do's in Arcade. And then we'll do a Nexus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lovely and, stuff And we'll have a wee secret unboxing of a new bonus feature at the end of uh, Disc 2 So please join us for that pronto <laughs> <laughs>